You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Well, uh, COVID finally got me. I've uh, been avoiding it for a long time. In fact, I just read a report. I don't have it now, in case you're wondering. I'm, I'm done with it. <laughs> I don't want to clear the room. <clears throat> I've been reading a report about those of us who had never gotten COVID were increasingly rare. We were even being called unicorns. So I was a unicorn for about a week, and then Joe Biden and I got COVID, and so the news didn't cover mine. They covered his for some reason. But what that meant is for the last two Sundays, I've been joining you online as I've been recovering uh, from COVID and then quarantining, and it was amazing. Speaking of the camera operators, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the online stuff, but it's, it's amazing what the team has done, what they've pulled together, and it was, it was great. But I have to say, it's way better being here than sitting on my couch and watching what what is happening. That experience was true. I mean, it was a true representation of of, uh, what happened the last two Sundays, but this is real. And that's the theme that we're looking at out of the book of 1 John this summer. We're talking about how to take our faith, what we believe to be true, and make it real, to get up off of our couches and turn it into action. And so today we turn our attention to someone who very much opposes any attempt that we might have to make something that we believe about God, about Jesus Christ, from true to real. That is Satan himself. Uh, He is completely happy with us sitting on our couches, nodding in agreement with the truth. But it's when we decide to get up off our collective couches and do something about it, that's when there is opposition. Last week, I read a news report about the Federal Reserve's goal of raising interest rates at the right amount and at the right time to um, tame inflation, to bring inflation back down, to slow it, without tipping the economy into a recession. It's often referred to as a soft landing, trying to bring the economy in for a soft landing rather than the crash landing of a recession. And so the reporter was talking about the Fed's efforts to do that and their timing, and then the reporter said this, but the devil will be in the details. Now, you hear this phrase often, not necessarily from people who have read the Bible or are Christians. It's just a phrase that's been in our culture for a long time. What does it mean? Well, I think what this reporter meant, for the most part, was it really doesn't matter what your intentions are, what the Fed's intentions are. It's the details in life that end up causing the most problems. Why? It's because reality is full of details. Truth can be general in nature. When you you agree on a truth, you can make a statement about it. This is what I believe to be true. It's statement-oriented. It's intention-oriented. I intend to love my wife. I intend to love my children. I, I intend to honor God. I intend to be a good worker. Those are all true statements that reflect what you really believe and what you want to do. I believe this to be true. I intend to do that. The problem is reality is not general in nature. It's not like truth and that you can just make statements and everyone can agree with that. That's true. That's good. Reality is not general. It's specific. It is action-oriented. So in order to move something from true to real, we have to get into the details. Let me give you an example. Here's a truth that I believe about parenting. Long before I was a parent, 
I believe this truth. And I think most people believe this. Here's the statement. Good parents are involved with their children. I think everybody would say, yeah, that's true. That makes sense. But then I had children, and I had to get detailed about that truth. I had to answer questions like, well, exactly how involved are good parents? And doing what? Involved is kind of a general word. So doing what? Am I, what am I supposed to be involved with doing with my kids? What about at different stages of life? There's a part of life where I need to be heavily involved, and then, then there's a shift where they didn't really want me to be as involved. So how do I get involved then? There's a lot of specific questions that have to be answered. What about the crunch times in life when my job demanded a lot of hours and I wasn't as available? What are the limits on that if I'm going to be a good parent? You see, it's easy to believe a piece of truth and even get emotional about your true intentions. But reality doesn't care about what you say is true. It doesn't care about what you intend to do. Reality only cares about what you actually do. And that turns out to not only be what you think is true, but what you also think is really important. So it's in the details of being married or parenting or building a career or being a follower of Christ. It's in the details where the challenge is. That's where we tend to get tripped up. Why? Not only because there are a lot of details, but also because it turns out someone is messing with us in the details of life. The reporter of that story that I read about the Fed was right, even though I don't think he really meant it. The devil really is in the details of life. In other words, that's where he meddles. The devil doesn't care much what you say, what I say. He's interested in what we do. We can pontificate all we want, but it's when we actually start doing something that's right, that is good, that is true, that's when we can expect opposition. That's when he shows up to oppose. Now, in our culture, Satan and the demonic realm are not real. You know, they show up in movies a lot. In fact, the trailer, I went and saw a movie this last Friday, and I would say more than half of the trailers were about demonic stuff. So we're fascinated by the demonic, but we tend to not think it's real, unless it's a, a Marvel movie. I mean, Marvel has a lot of demonic stuff in it. But that's, that's a fantasy world. That's the Marvel universe. And so we tend to think this is not real. Now, this fall, we're actually going to do a series of messages about this invisible realm. We're calling the series Paranormal. I think this will be really helpful as we look at the evidence behind this invisible realm and the war that goes on that we cannot see. But for this purpose this morning, let me just say this. If we don't think Satan is real, if you don't think Satan is real, that gives him an insurmountable advantage. Because an enemy that you don't think exists is an enemy that pretty much has already won. And whenever you're facing an unseen enemy, like Satan and the demonic horde, it's really helpful to know how they might attack you so that you can prepare a defense and that you can respond and resist appropriately when you are under attack. And the next verses we're going to look at in the book of 1 John, we are given the two-pronged tactic, the tactical plan of Satan. And they are brilliant tactics. One of the things, if you read through the Bible, we are given basically the playbook of, of the enemy. And it's not a particularly big playbook because 
It's so effective. He doesn't need a lot of plans because we keep caving in on these. I mean, just think, though, if, if you were trying to stop someone from really doing the right thing, if that was your goal, that was your mission, how might you go about doing that? If you think for a little while, you can probably come up with these two tactics. If you're trying to stop someone from doing the right thing, how would you attack? Well, first of all, you'd probably try to get them confused about what the right thing is. Because if they don't know what the right thing is, they're not going to do it. And then if they do know what the right thing is and they start doing it, you probably want to get them discouraged about continuing to do it. You want to stop them. You want to slow their progress. And those are the two tactics that we see in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at each of them today. Tactic number one in your outline is this, deception. Deception. How? Quite simply, the enemy deceives us by telling lies. Now, you won't hear the voice of Satan lying. You're not going to hear some weird, marvel, demonic creature speaking with flames coming out of its mouth. That would be way too obvious. That would not work. You'd be, I don't think I'm listening to that. But we are told how the enemy lies to us. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3 says this. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. What is this saying? Well, you know, if, if some kind of spiritual apparition, ghost kind of thing showed up and started talking to you, would you believe everything it said? Probably not. Why? Because your weird meter would already be, you know, going off the charts. And you would, you would have a lot of questions about this ghost sighting. Your mental defenses would already be on high alert, and your mind would be engaged trying to make sense of what is this? Am I hallucinating? Is this a, another COVID effect? What is this? You'd be trying to figure this out. But this is not talking about Satan himself or demonic spirits showing up and talking to us directly. It says, don't believe every spirit, and then it goes on to say, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Wait, I thought we were talking about spirits that you can't see, not false prophets. Why does it say, don't believe every spirit, because all kinds of false prophets have gone out into the world? What's it saying? It's saying, these are together. They're one and the same. These spirits that are lying, that are deceiving, are hiding in the bodies of these false prophets. They're going incognito inside a normal-looking person. These false prophets were not odd-looking people who were obviously speaking for Satan with contorted <coughs> looks and weird voices. They're just ordinary people doing what ordinary people do. They were talking about what they think is true. They would probably never call themselves prophets, but that's what all of us do when we say what we believe. When we tell someone, well, I think this is true about anything in life, we are a prophet of truth to that person. Now, what 
the people didn't realize, these false prophets didn't realize, and the people listening to them didn't realize, is that they were not the only mind present in this exchange of ideas. These false prophets had gotten help in coming to the conclusions that they were now telling others about. They didn't know this. They thought they'd come to the conclusion on their own. They had come to this decision. They didn't realize that these lying spirits were lying through their teeth. They were speaking words that didn't originate with them. One of the things that I think is important for us to realize, and I present this to you as something for you to consider whether you think this is true or not. You may not agree with it, but just think about this. One of the things the Bible makes very clear is that every truth claim in this world has a source beyond the human mind. It's very important to understand about the nature of our minds. We make decisions about truth, but we don't originate either truth or lies. Every truth claim, every, every statement that says this is true that you hear in this world has a source beyond the human mind. German astrologer Johann Kepler was a, a key figure in the scientific revolution of the 17th century. He is the one that's best known for his laws of planetary motion. Now, he was the first human being to come up with the theories and now the laws of planetary motion, how the planets move around uh, the sun and how the earth takes its place in that realm in our galaxy. He was the first one to think of this truth. But he didn't think that this truth originated in his mind. He was the one that coined the phrase that many of the early scientists repeated, and that is they were trying to think God's thoughts after him. What he realized as a follower of Christ is that God is the one who thought of planetary motion. He's the one that put the planets into motion. Kepler is the one who discovered, the first human to discover how that worked and began to say that, and then other humans like you and me now know this truth. We can say these things. But it didn't originate in the human mind. It originated in the mind of God. And it's the same on the other side of the truth spectrum, the lie side of the spectrum. This is why Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. Not just someone who lies, but the originator of every single lie. What this means is every lie that we believe and every lie that we or anyone says didn't originate in our minds. People don't invent lies. They repeat lies. Satan invents lies. Now, there may be the first human being to think of this particular lie, and to tell it to other people who then repeat that lie, but they are not thinking original thoughts. They're thinking first human thoughts, but they're not thinking original thoughts. If it's a lie, it came from the mind of Satan. This is what Jesus taught. So every truth has its origin in the mind of God. Every lie has its origin in the mind of Satan. Now the challenge for us as humans is we traffic in both. We traffic in truth, and we traffic in lies. The truth brings us good because the truth fits reality. Lies do us great harm because they don't fit reality. Now, when it comes to moral lies, the challenge we face with moral lies is there is a delay factor in the pain that comes with moral lies. 
The pain from believing a moral lie occurs eventually, not immediately. And we tend to not be very patient. We tend to be more pragmatic. In other words, we want something that works now, today. But the truth is not quick. We have to be patient. Now, it wasn't just a few false prophets that John talks about that were running around lying. He says there were many false prophets that had gone out into the world. If you were to interview these false prophets again, I don't think they would say, yeah, Satan sent me to say this. They weren't thinking that. They were probably convinced that they were telling the truth, that they were being helpful, when in fact they were being pawns. So if they didn't know that they were false prophets, how can you and I possibly know if what we are thinking is true or whether it's a lie? That brings us to the two ways there are to test the truth. For us as humans, we've always had two ways to test truth. The first test is called the self-test. The self-test means your mind is the ultimate authority on truth. It is the final arbiter of what is true and what is false. You trust yourself to figure out what is true and what is a lie. Now, that seems kind of reasonable because you have a brain that does this all the time. And that's why this is the most popular test, and it always has been. This is where the phrase, my truth, comes from. The phrase, my truth, is more recent, but the idea of my truth is not at all original or recent. The challenge with the self-test is this. There really are two big challenges. If you believe that your mind is the ultimate authority on what is true, what that means is that you are assuming that you can't be fooled that you can't be tricked, that your mind is flawless in its logic and its ability to ferret out the truth from the lies. And the fact is, we are pretty easily tricked into believing a lie. Just this past year, 2.8 million Americans filed a fraud report with the government. Now, that's just 2.8 million that lost enough money because they believed the lie and they decided to report it to the government. There were many more who were defrauded. And if you add to that defrauding beyond financial tricks, there's just all, I mean, we are tricked all the time. People deceive us all the time. Ideas fool us all the time. We've all been duped in some way, maybe even just this last week. So, if you think your truth detector, your mind is flawless, that's an indicator your mind is not working very well. Is it your experience should tell you, I may have a good mind, but it's not flawless. That's one of the challenges with the self-test. The second challenge with the self-test is it assumes that we have access to all of the data. You see, truth depends on the accurate data that supports it. But we only have a fraction of the data. Why? Because we are finite creatures who live at a certain time and are limited to where our body is. But we live in a very big world. And therefore, there's all kinds of data that we can't 
we can't ever see. We don't have enough life and enough money to travel and see and explore everything. And we live in an even bigger universe. Every telescope we put up there, we discover it's bigger than we thought. There's more data out there than we will ever see and that our mind ever has the capacity to process. This is why science must often admit that what they thought just 10 or 15 years ago turns out wasn't true. Not because they were lying 10 or 15 years ago, but because the data seemed to indicate this, but now there's more data that seems to indicate not that, but this. New data was discovered. But what if reality is bigger than what we can see? What if reality is bigger than what's on the periodic table of elements? It's bigger than the material world. What if there is an invisible world that is also real, but it, it can't be scientifically seen or proven? If that's the case, which I think it is, and I think there's lots of evidence that points to that, then that make, makes our truth-deciding challenge even bigger and really impossible. Those are the challenges with the self-test. That brings us to the second test, and that is the source test. The source test is this. You rely on God, the first source of all truth, to help you identify the lots. Now, there's some challenges with this test also. The simple fact that we are finite beings with finite minds means that when it comes to the truth, we have challenges whichever way you decide to go. And you're a better thinker if you're just honest about the way you've decided and the challenges that that path represents. The challenges with this test is this. You have to trust a source document. When I say God is the source of all truth, what the source test means is that, and he's told us the truth that he wants us to know. He's revealed it to us. He has spoken and the words have been recorded. So the Bible, for example, is a source document. It claims to be God's words on what is true. But it's not the only document in existence that claims to be a source document. There are others. And this is one of the challenges. If you're going to be a source truth person, you're going to have to pick a source. You're going to have to do the research to figure out, well, which one of these documents is true. If you think they all say about the same things, I'll just tell you, you haven't read them. Just read them. I have. Read them. Very, very different. And it's a big decision to decide which source document is true. And that's why, for me personally, I took two years to investigate the source documents. I read them. All the documents that claim to be from God. Because I didn't want to trust any document just on my upbringing or a feeling, my gut. Now, it doesn't need to take two years. I know a lot of people who have made a decision without two years. I'm just a very skeptical person by nature. I've got questions all the time. I've got doubts all the time. So I just, I just move slower. My brain is, takes some time. So that's the way it was for me. So the first challenge with the source test is you've got to trust the source document. The second challenge is once you trust a document, let's say you trust the Bible like I have, well, then you've got to learn what it says. There are no source documents that are two pages. There are a lot of pages. You can't use the Bible to test what is true if you don't know what it says about a particular idea 
or a particular statement. And so all of this takes time. It takes time to figure out, can I really trust the Bible, for example? And what does it say about marriage? What does it say about this area of life or that area of life? And this is why, because it takes so much time to do this, most people just stick with the self-test or what we refer to as the gut test. They just feel their way through the maze of ideas in this world and often find themselves up against a dead end. Now, if, like me, you've decided to guide your life using the Bible as your source test of truth, you will find yourself in situations where you need detailed input that are time-sensitive. And there won't be time. Let's say you're in a marriage and you're struggling with your marriage and you're stuck. You don't have time to do a three-year study on what the Bible says about marriage. You need help now. So what do you do then? Well, you go online and just trust your brain to separate lies from truth. I wouldn't recommend that. But if you decided that the Bible is your source of truth, what do you do? Well, this brings us to the next test, which is the quick test. Actually, it's a subset of the source test, the quick test. This is what's recommended in 1 John chapter 4. It says, if, if you want to test the spirits, in other words, if you want to know if this person who's talking to you is representing the lying side of the equation or God's side, the true side, here's the test. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is the quick test. What does this mean? If you're going to get advice from somebody, which if you're stuck in your marriage, I recommend you get advice. But here's the question. Does the person you're getting advice from acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God in flesh? That's the test. Ask them. Don't just assume, oh, yeah, they say they're a Christian. So? That's a marshmallow term. Almost nobody knows what that really means anymore. So just ask them. Yeah, yeah, but who do you think Jesus is? And if they say, oh, he's a great teacher or a prophet, say, well, yes, of course, but do you think he was, 2,000 years ago, God in a body walking around in Palestine? And if the spirit that is behind their thinking is not sourced from God, they won't say that. They'll say, well, no. Why is this such a, an important test? It's because this is the central truth of the Bible. God took on a body to save us. And if someone doesn't really believe that, if what's animating their thinking is from the enemy and not from God, they will never admit that. They will never say that. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't learn from anyone who won't say this. But what it does mean is if you're going to trust someone to help you figure out truth from God, you want to know what side they're on. Do they believe Jesus is God in flesh or not? That's the quick test. So that's tactic number one, deception. And it occurs 24-7. We hear ideas, we think ideas that are not just our own thinking. They come from the enemy. Tactic number two is discouragement. The goal is this. If you are doing the right thing, the enemy wants to slow you down and hopefully stop you. And discouragement is the tactic. How? By making accusations against you. 
just throwing dirt and accusations at you to get you to pause and wonder, am I, am I off here? Because this is really hard. You see, if Satan can't get you off track with a lie, he'll aim to stop your forward progress with discouragement. Knowing the truth and doing nothing about it is functionally the same as not knowing the truth. Now, why wouldn't we act on the truth? It's because there's so much opposition to doing the truth, turning truth into reality. The next two verses, 1 John 4, 4 through 5, says this, You, dear children are from God, speaking to those who have decided to follow Jesus Christ and trust the Bible as their source of truth. You're from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. So it starts out by saying that as children of God, we have overcome them. Who are them? goes on to make it clear, it's just speaking of pretty much everybody in the world. Now, it says we've overcome them. Does it feel like that to you? In other words, does it feel like as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are on the winning side of the ideas for truth in our culture? It doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like, like we are in the decreasing minority, the fringe idiots. It's what it feels like to me if you listen to the conversation going on in the culture. There are lots of voices saying that you and I are wrong in what we believe to be true based on what the Bible said and that we're even stupid or worse. And it says here, this is what was true back then. This is what's going to happen now. Why? They are from the world. People saying this, they're from the world. And whatever they say... Whatever ideas they're saying, it's just simply what the world is currently saying. There were a whole set of ideas 2,000 years ago when this was written that was being said, a whole different set of lies than the set of lies that are being said now. And what's being said now is going to change because what the world thinks is true is always changing. I mean, it used to be the big ideas would change every couple hundred, maybe 300 years. Now, the big ideas are changing about every five to seven years. Just any politician who's older than 60, they've had to flip and flop three and four and five times because the culture keeps changing its mind on the current version of what is right and what is true and what is good. So the people in the world are not original thinkers. They're just parroting what the world is saying. And the truth is, we're not original thinkers. We're repeating what the Bible is saying. Most people say what they hear most people in the world saying. In other words, right now, you give me a topic, I can tell you almost word for word what people are going to say in response. The world has given everybody their lines. This is what you are supposed to say. This is what you're not supposed to say. People are not thinking, they're simply repeating. The world has always been one big feedback loop. People saying what the world is saying and people listening to what they are saying and then repeating what everyone is saying. That's, that's not new. I think internet and social media has kind of accelerated that, but it's not a new phenomenon. 
And, of course, in our world right now, if you don't read your lines correctly and say what you're supposed to say, you're going to be ridiculed and looked down on. And that represents the pressure of accusation. When we are accused of being stupid, hateful, I mean, it, it hits, and it slows us down. But these, the pressure of these words do not have their origin in the speakers. Just like the lies, there is an unseen author behind the accusations of all this pressure. You know, accusation is what the name Satan actually means. Satan is a Hebrew word. You pronounce it satan. And it literally means to attack or to accuse. That's what the name Satan means. Devil is a Greek word, diablos. And it also means to accuse. So names in ancient times were given to be descriptive of the person. Now we just give names we like, and that we hopefully our kids won't be made fun of when they go to school. But back then, they gave names that communicated what they wanted that child to be in life. And so when God named Satan, he called him what he is. I mean, if you've got a name tag on that says accuser, uh, be careful. You know, it's God's way of saying, this is what he does. 24-7. And he doesn't just make accusations occasionally. He speaks lies and accusations. He tells us over and over again, you are wrong. Why? What's the point? Just to get us discouraged. To at least slow us down and maybe get us to stop moving forward. Now, the best accusations are a seed of truth surrounded by a lie. So I want to identify for you uh, two of Satan's favorite accusations. He repeats these over and over again in different forms, but it, these are the seeds. The first accusation is this. God is not good. God is not good. You know, if you decide to trust God as a source of truth, but you start to wonder if he's good, what's going to happen to your trust? It's going to weaken, maybe break. And then what will happen to your forward progress? You're not going to be willing to pay much of a price to do what he says is true if you don't think his heart towards you is good. It will slow you, and you'll come to a stop. Job was a man in the Bible. A whole book in the Old Testament tells his story that had decided to trust God's word as his source of truth. Satan wanted to stop Job. What was his plan? To argue with Job rationally? No. To bring disaster into his life. Here's what we read in Job 1, 9 through 11. Satan says this to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Always take God seriously for nothing? Job replies, or Satan replies. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the, the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan knows that we're short-term thinkers. We evaluate God's goodness and his words based on whether or not they're working for us now. But in a broken world, warped by the lies of the enemy, the truth is almost never a quick fix to the pain of life. God's words are more like a, a new diet that will eventually lead to our health. But it isn't necessarily going to make you feel better today or this week or in this, this month. 
The problem is all we really want is another candy bar today. Job had all of his candy bars taken away. All the sweetness in his life was gone. You can read the story. His wife, without the sweetness of the candy bars, got bitter. But Job said this after everything had been taken from him, but his life. It says this in verse 21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, that's amazing. But if you read the story, that's what he said in chapter 1. For the next 36 chapters, he really struggled with whether or not God is good. So that's question number one. Something will happen in your life, and Satan will say, that's who you trust? I don't know if you should. The second accusation is, you're not good enough. The first accusation questions God's goodness. This one questions our goodness, and therefore, why God would ever love us. Both have the effect of creating a wedge and some distance between us and God. You know, either we aren't worthy of God's love or God isn't worthy of our love is the goal behind this accusa- both of these accusations. Satan points to a bad event and says, see, God is not good, he's bad. And it's very convincing. And Satan points to your sin and he says, see, you're not good enough for God. And it's very convincing. But Satan is not telling the whole truth. The best lies have just a little piece of the truth and it warps. The truth is that God took on a body and died a death that he did not deserve so that you and I could be forgiven and have a future that we don't deserve. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. And so when Satan says, you're not good enough, the answer is, you're exactly right. Jesus is, though. That's why Jesus came to die for me. That's why it says, the one who is in you, Jesus Christ, is greater than the one who's in the world. Another way of saying this is what what Jesus says about you, you are forgiven, eclipses what Satan says about you, you're a sinner. And this means that we can stop trying to defend ourselves with how good we are, why someone else is to blame for how bad we are. We can stop hiding and admit the truth. We can come out of the dark and be honest about our sin and the need that we have for a righteousness that is not of our own doing. It was given to us by God, paid for by Jesus Christ, God in flesh. So the truth is, you are not good enough. I'm not good enough. God knows it. The people close to you know it. But here's the truth. God longs to change you, and in order for that to happen, you just have to humble yourself, admit the truth about yourself, and step out from the shadows and into the light. In this past election, I think we all received a lot of uh, political mail, and it it was full of accusations. This is the, the topic we're talking about is accusations. I mean, people were accused of horrible things. And if you believed every one of them, you're like, well, I shouldn't vote for anybody then. They're all snakes. They've all done horrible things, quoted by all different newspapers of horrible things they've done. And none of them seemed to be able to take a good picture. They all looked like warped, darkened, shadowed people. So it made you wonder about some of them. But there was an accusation made against a particular politician who was running for office that didn't faze me at all. 
I didn't believe a bit of it. Instantly, I didn't believe it. The reason is because I know this person. We have a history together. We're not close. We're not best friends. But this person actually was a part of Seabreeze back in the early days down at the Rogers Center. I knew him long before he became a politician. And I know the story of what's happened in his life. And so when I read the accusations, I was like, yeah, I know what they're referring to, but what actually happened was this. Because of our history, it didn't faze me. And I say this because Satan will level accusations about God and about you, and it will stop you if there is little history between you and Jesus. Now, the history between you and Jesus begins at the cross. You accept his mercy. And then, what happens after that? You accept his mercy again, and again, and again, and again. And what happens over time is the cross and the forgiveness that Jesus offers gets bigger and bigger in your mind, and your performance gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And therefore, when the enemy comes and accuses you of not being good enough, it doesn't faze you. Your thought is, well, yeah. That's not news. Jesus and I know this really well. We have a history on this one. What about the accusation that God is not good? If you have a history of walking with Jesus, over time the cross becomes your main evidence for God's goodness. Now, if you look at the circumstances of your life at any given point, you may have reason to wonder about God's goodness to you. But if you look at the fact that God took on a body and he came to earth and he suffered and he died for you? That settles it. God is good. He loves me. The cross is the centerpiece of God's goodness to us, not our circumstances. But it takes history with Jesus for that to move from true to real. So we are in a war. Satan would prefer that you don't think so. The Bible says we are. The battleground exists between our ears and our mind. As we sort truth from lie, and as we feel the accusations about God and about us, don't head into the war unprepared and unarmed with the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, many of us admit that although we'd like to think we're really smart and have great minds, when it comes to the task of discerning the truth, we, have, we are very limited. So many of us have decided to listen to you, to build our lives based on what you, you said. Sometimes that really makes sense. Other times we struggle to know whether this is what we really want to do. But over time, as we do what you say is right and true, we see a harvest of goodness. There's still pain in this broken world, but we know our life is much better than it would have been. And so we thank you for your truth. Help us to identify the lies that are rattling around our own brains right now and to dig out the accusations that are driving a wedge between us. 
Help us resist the attacks of the enemy. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.